Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you all here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and uh, I'm excited about today as we are continuing through our series, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've been with us at all this year at GSC, you you know we've kind of been kind of in and out of the Sermon on the Mount this year. And the Sermon on the Mount is amazing. If you're not familiar with it, it's in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. It's just like Jesus' magnum opus. It is amazing. All the things that Jesus covers and the way he says things, it's so, so powerful. And today we're going to cover just a little bit more of it. And there's a few things we're going to be talking about. Um, But like always, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's something we could literally spend forever talking about and never quite mind the depths of it because it is so profound and so amazing. Uh, But today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 24. All right, Matthew 6, 16 to 24. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. We'll have the verses up on the screen. Or if you have a phone, you can go to our website. There is the follow along tab. And there at the follow along tab, you'll have all the verses and the notes and whatnot. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 24. We're going to cover a couple different things today. Um, So here we go. All right, Matthew 6, we're going to look at verses 16 to 18 first. And in these verses, Jesus is going to be talking about a spiritual discipline. Now, if you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've heard that term before, a spiritual discipline, but maybe you haven't, and that's okay. A spiritual discipline is basically something that Christians do, Jesus followers do, in order to follow Jesus. Things uh, like prayer and Bible study. A spiritual discipline is, hey, we do this so we can learn more about God and so that we can live for him more faithfully. And as a Christian, when I think of spiritual disciplines, prayer and Bible reading are kind of the first two things I think about. And then I might think about giving or serving. But Jesus is going to highlight a spiritual discipline that we don't often talk about nowadays. All right. So here we go. Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. And this is what Jesus says. He says, and when you fast... Don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. All right, so Jesus is talking about this spiritual discipline called fasting. And if you're not sure what fasting is, fasting is basically just intentionally abstaining from something. All right, typically we think about fasting from food. And people fast today for different reasons. Uh, I don't know if maybe you've ever had a medical procedure and you had to fast from food for a certain amount of time before the procedure. Like, that's a common thing. But in Scripture, fasting was a spiritual discipline where people, they denied themselves something, often food, so that they could prioritize other things, specifically prayer, uh, repentance, grief, things like that, so that they could lean into their relationship with God. And in the Old Testament, we see that oftentimes. We see the people in uh, in the book of Jonah, where the king of Nineveh and, and all the people have a communal fast, where if you remember the story, Jonah comes and says, hey, God, God's wrath is coming upon you. And so All the people fast and they cry out to God, uh, seeking God to uh, be merciful to them. We see other times in the Old Testament where the Jews were required to fast on specific days, different festivals and whatnot, where they're told to, hey, deny yourself these things 
so that you can prioritize these other things. Now, Jesus, he brings up fasting here because he's, he's noticing something. Did you see it? In what Jesus says, he noticed something. He's looking around the people in his culture and he's seeing, hey, there's something wrong with the way they're fasting. He sees that the people, they're, they're physically, uh, if you read it in verse 16, they're, they try to look miserable and disheveled. Like they're purposefully manipulating the way they look. Why? So that people will admire them for their fasting. Think about that. They're, try, they're supposedly doing this practice for God, but they're manipulating their own appearance. So as they go about, everyone's like, whoa, look at them. They're fasting. Wow, like, good for them. Their fasting is all about gaining other people's approval. They're not fasting for God. And Jesus, is he's pretty blunt here. In verse six, 16, he says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. Jesus, he's looking around and he notices, hey, I'm surrounded by all these people who are supposed to be spiritual, but they're really just hypocrites. They're doing this thing as a show for other people. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's kind of, you, you feel like oh, maybe your friendship with them is a little fake, or they're just kind of a fake person. They always put this front on, but you know there's really more going on. Jesus is looking at their spiritual disciplines and saying, hey, this is all a front. They're trying to look like this, but they're doing it all because they want other people's approval. It's not about their relationship with God at all. And in the Old Testament, we see a number of places where the Jewish people, they, they abused this practice of fasting. You can read about it in Jeremiah 14 or Isaiah 58, where God, he basically calls them out for being fake and phony. He's just like, hey, you're fasting, but all the while while you're fasting, you're missing out on serving other people. All the time while you're putting on this show and making yourself look terrible, uh, all, you're just doing it to gain other people's approval. And God's like, yeah, I'm not for that. Because God... He doesn't look at the outside. He looks at our heart. And he saw the heart of the Jewish people oftentimes. And he's like, you know what? Your motives for fasting are all, all wrong. They're messed up. Now, Jesus isn't condemning fasting. No, he's condemning fasting for the wrong motives. And in verse 17, um, Jesus kind of implies that, hey, as his followers, fasting is something we may do. Verse 17, he says, but when you fast, and he talks about comb your hair and wash your face. Basically the idea of, hey, just look normal, like look presentable. You, we could say, hey, put on the normal clothes you wear, put on the normal makeup you wear, brush your teeth, and just look presentable. Don't let anyone know that you're fasting. And Jesus, he doesn't give tons of like rules around fasting, but if you look at the different um rabbinical traditions there were there were different rules about fasting and many of the rabbis they would fast regularly they would have a day of the week where they would fast and whatnot and again they would make themselves look miserable and disheveled because it was all a show for other people so jesus isn't concerned about all of the like details of like fast for this fast for this fast on that day whatever he's concerned about the motivation behind it and so let me just ask, do, are, do we fast? Like, is that something we practice or is it something we don't practice? Is it something we, maybe we should practice a little more? 
I don't know, Jesus kind of, he gives the, the doors kind of open for us that, hey, as Jesus followers, this is something we can participate in. And I think there's good reason to do it. I mean, Jesus talks about in verse 18, he says uh, that your father who sees everything will reward you. He talks about how there's actually an, an incentive to fast. And that's not the first time Jesus has used that language of reward. He's used that earlier in chapter 6 when he talked about giving and when he talked about prayer and in other times in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by that, like that our Father will see us when we fast and will reward us. But I don't think he's saying, hey, if you fast, you will be saved. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about earning our salvation. That is through grace alone, by faith alone. But there is something where, hey, as Jesus followers, when we choose to put God first, our Heavenly Father sees that and He desires to reward that. And I don't think that's always necessarily here in this life. I think that's oftentimes going to be in the life to come. But fasting is something that Jesus was seeing in His day and age as something that people were abusing and were using for the wrong thing. And so today as Jesus followers, if fasting is something you decide to do, I would just encourage you to really think about your motives behind it. Why are you doing it? And I'd encourage you, maybe fasting is something you've never done, but maybe it's something that a practice we could do or you could do. You could try it um, because fasting is all about, hey, I'm going to set aside this so I can prioritize what's most important. I'm going to set, oftentimes it's food because, hey, I need food, but what I really need most is God, who is the provider of my food. But there's other things we could fast from. I've talked to people who fasted from social media or from just entertainment in general because that was something that was becoming too just big in their life. And they said, you know what? I need to set this aside from time to time so I can kind of recalibrate and refocus on what's most important. Um, So maybe there's something in your life that, hey, maybe you could try fasting from. But again, Jesus isn't concerned necessarily about like, hey, how often what the length of time is. Jesus fasted for 40 days when he went into the wilderness from food. I don't necessarily think he's calling all of us to fast for 40 days or necessarily from food. But what I think he's calling us to is, hey, if we're going to participate in a spiritual discipline like fasting, it should be for the right motives. It should be, hey, I'm going to set aside this not to show off to everyone and gain their approval, but so that I can prioritize what's most important which is my relationship with God. And this is a theme throughout chapter 6 so far, because Jesus, up until this point, he's already talked about two other spiritual disciplines. He's talked about giving, he's talked about prayer, and now he's talked about fasting. And uh, check this out. In Matthew 6, verse 2, when he talks about giving, he says this. He says, don't do as the hypocrites do. And then in verse 5, when he talks about prayer, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And then in verse 16, when he's talking about fasting, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. When Jesus repeats things like this, we should should pay attention. He's getting at this reality that, hey, as human beings, when it comes to what we do for God, when it comes to our spiritual disciplines, we have a tendency to do them potentially for the wrong reasons. Because we're sinful, we're fickle human beings. We live in this physical world and there's people around us, and it's so easy to say, hey, I'm doing this for God, when really deep down in our hearts, we're doing it for other reasons. 
And so I think the first thing we, we just need to process today with all of this is, what are the motivations behind our spiritual disciplines? What are the motivations behind your spiritual disciplines? Whether that be prayer or fasting or reading God's word or coming to church or whatever. What are the motives in your heart behind these things? I think we have to get, have a heart check and we have to process this reality that God, God desires his people to have a genuine, authentic spirituality. All right? He wants it to be genuine. He wants it to be based on a relationship with him. Not a fake and phony spirituality that is based on using God to look good in front of others. God is really concerned about the posture of our heart. The things we do outwardly, externally, oftentimes we can do for the wrong reasons. We can do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And we're going to do that. We're going to mess up. I mess up all the time at that because I'm a sinful, fallen human being. And thankfully, it's by grace we're saved. But now that we're saved by the blood of Jesus, now we're in the sanctification process of becoming like Jesus. And a big part of that is it's way more than just conforming what we do. It's conforming who we are to Jesus. And so sometimes we have to stop and think, why do I do what I do? Are my motivations the same motivations Jesus had? Or are my motivations kind of off a little bit? And we shouldn't be surprised if they get off a little bit because, again, we're sinful, fallen human beings. But the important thing is to recalibrate and to keep moving towards Jesus. So that's the first thing today is just kind of processing what are our spiritual, uh, when it comes to our spiritual disciplines, what are our motivations? Are we moving towards genuine, authentic spirituality, becoming like Jesus? Or are we just kind of fake? Are we kind of going through the motions? Are we doing this Christian life to look good for other people? Do we come to church to look good for other people? Do we read God's word just to kind of check off the box? And there's seasons where that's going to happen. There's days where that's going to happen because we're people. But in our lives, is there a genuine relationship and a genuine desire to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus? So what are our motivations? So that's the first thing. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit because Jesus here in the passage, he's going to switch uh, gears a little bit. In verses 19 to 24, he's going to talk about some some other things. Um, and in these these next few verses, he's going to highlight three different metaphors. And these metaphors, they're, they're different, but they're similar. They're all kind of getting towards the same thing, but slightly differently. Um, so we're going to hit them all together. And the first thing he's going to talk about is treasure. Then he's going to talk about a healthy eye versus an unhealthy eye. And then he's going to talk about who our master is. All right? And all these things are different, but they kind of play together a little bit. So the first one, Jesus is going to talk about where our treasure is in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And this is what it says. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Have you ever bought something and brought it home, gotten out of the box, and then it broke like 10 seconds later? You bought something and you're like, oh, this is going to be great, and then it's 
you're like, man, that was a ripoff. I've done that at times where I thought I was getting a great deal, and in reality, it was a bad deal. I got scammed. I, it was a ripoff. I shouldn't have invested in the thing I invested in. Jesus is, is pointing out here the reality that, hey, there's, we're all going to be investing in different kinds of treasure. The question is, are you investing in good treasure or bad treasure? Are you investing in the best treasure or are you settling for treasure that's, at the end of the day, kind of a ripoff? Because again, Jesus, he's looking around and he's seeing people investing in the wrong things. He's seeing the fact that, hey, in our world, there are things like moths. And have you ever heard of mothballs? You know, people put mothballs in different, like their wardrobes or whatnot to keep the moths away. Why? Because the moths will get in there and they'll ruin clothes or different things like that. Moths will come in and decay those things. Or rust, it gets on metal and it starts to decay that thing. So there's things that we put value in that Jesus is like, hey, it's going to decay. It's, it's not going to last. Or there's other things where, hey, it's may, it might not decay very quick, but a thief could come in and steal. Jesus points it out that there's moths, there's rust, and thieves are going to break in and steal. The treasure of this earth is treasure that we're ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to lose it. It's either going to break or get stolen, or we're not going to be able to take it with us when we go to the next life. We come into this life with nothing, and we leave this life with nothing. And so Jesus, he's looking around and he's saying, hey, you can invest in treasure in life, but which treasure are you investing in? I don't know if any of you have ever seen those treasure hunting shows on like the History Plant or History Channel. Uh, has anyone ever seen one of those? Where there there's these guys and they're just like out of their minds for this like hidden treasure. And they're like going crazy. And I don't know if it, they're just doing it for TV or if they're like legit insane. All right? Because they think there's this treasure and they dig and they dig and they get all these technology trying to find it. And they waste years and decades of their life trying to find this treasure. And even if they find it, they, they're, they're at a point in their life where they don't have much time left. And it's like, why, why would you waste so much of your life after that? But they do. And the reality is, all of us, we're all treasure hunters. Because Jesus points out, hey, it's not wrong to seek treasure, but it's wise to seek the best treasure. Jesus is helping us out here, guys. He's like, hey, you want to seek treasure? Here's the treasure map. Seek out the best treasure. Don't settle for that stuff. That stuff, moths are going to destroy it, and rust is going to come in, and hey, some thief is going to come steal it. But there's a treasure, guys, where no one can steal it. He's giving us the treasure map to the best treasure ever, and it's treasure that's in heaven. And so the question is, are we investing in the temporal or in the eternal? The treasure of this earth is temporal. It's going to fade away. But the treasure of heaven is eternal. And I think there's lots of things in life that we as people can consider treasure. I think treasure is the things that, that we think we have to have in life. It's the things that we say, hey, I will only be happy if I have this. Or, hey, I will only be satisfied if I get this. Or, my life will only be whole and complete if I get that. That's what treasure is. It's what we say is most valuable. It's of ultimate worth. It's worth everything, going fully after it. 
And there's lots of things that we deem as treasure in this world, whether it's possessions or money, material things, whether it's our reputation or our standing and status in society, or whether it's our brains or our education or our hobbies or our family or jobs or whatever. The, the list can just go on and on. There are so many things that as people say, that's treasure, and we go after it. And none of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. The question is, are they worth being called treasure? Are they worth that pursuit of just ultimate worth and value? And Jesus seems to think they're not. He thinks that there's better treasure, and he's offering it to us. He's not holding back on us. He says, hey, there's treasure in heaven. Now, I don't know what that treasure is going to look like. That, that's one of the things where Jesus, he kind of says it, and it's like, can you just like give us a list of what all that treasure is, Jesus? Like, What do you mean by that treasure in heaven? Because I can understand earthly treasure, but when it comes to heavenly treasure, I don't fully grasp it. But if Jesus thinks that, that God, our Heavenly Father, has a desire to give us treasure in heaven and that that's eternal treasure, and he says that's worth pursuing, then we have to ask ourselves, am I going to trust Jesus' judgment about what is treasure, or am I going to trust my own sinful heart about what I think is treasure? And so let me ask you, are you investing in the temporal or the eternal in your life? Again, the things of this world aren't necessarily bad. Money, jobs, families, reputation, those things aren't necessarily bad in of themselves, but should they be our treasure? And this is really important because Jesus says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. What we deem as treasure, that's what we're going to go after. And so if Jesus and the things of God and his kingdom aren't where our treasure lies, then we're going to run after things that at the end of the day, are a ripoff because we're going to lose it in one way or another. So that's the first metaphor Jesus talks about is our treasure. He then moves on to another one in verses 22 and 23. And personally, I think this is a really confusing metaphor that Jesus uses. I think we would understand it better if we were in his original context, um, but it kind of takes a little bit to get our mind around it. At least for me it does. And this is verses 22 and 23. And Jesus says this. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. All right, so Jesus, he says that, hey, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. So picture a windowless room, all right, a room with no windows. It's going to be dark, right, unless a lamp gets turned on. And in Jesus' day, they would have pictured an oil lamp. Uh, we could picture an electric lamp. We just turn the switch. And, but if there's no windows and there's no lamp on, the room's going to be dark. But as soon as we turn the lamp on, the room's full of light. So Jesus, he's, he's talking about light and darkness, which I think we, we understand. It's a common theme of good and evil, of 
what's good and what's what's bad. And so Jesus, he's pointing out that, hey, we can have a healthy eye and be full of good things, or we can have a bad eye and be full of darkness, of bad things. But Jesus, he, he talks about how our eye is like that lamp. And this is where I get, I get confused by it. But Jesus, he's comparing that, hey, if we have a healthy eye, we're like a lamp in a windowless room, and so we're full of light. Or we have an unhealthy eye, and we're like a, a windowless room without a lamp, or a lamp that's broken, and we're full of darkness. And don't, when he says eye, don't think of like our physical eyes. He's talking about something different than like our, our vision, because that's instantly where my brain goes. Um, but different scholars and one I have pointed out that Jesus, he's, he's getting at what, what the eye represents. Our eye, what does it do? It, it fixes on something. It has vision. It gazes at something. And when we gaze at something, and when we have a single eye for something, we can, we can look at it. We can stay focused on it. We have, we're devoted to it with our single vision. Try to be fully devoted to two different objects. Like, bounce your eyes back and forth really quick, and you're instantly, you lose focus. And your eye bounces from here to here to here to here. And it's, it's hard to maintain focus and single devotion when, you're, when your eye is, is unhealthy, when your eye is split by two different things. All right? And so Jesus says, hey, you should have a healthy eye of devotion. You should have single devotion and when you're like that, when you have that single devotion towards what's right, it's like you're going to be full of light. But when you have an unhealthy eye, imagine an eye that's just that's diseased or, or blinded and it's hard to stay focused and it's just bouncing back and forth between two different things. You're going to be full of darkness because you're not going to be fixing on what's most important. Does, does that make sense? And so I think what Jesus is really driving at is this question. Are you of single devotion to God or split devotion with something else? Are you of single devotion? Like, are you fully gazing towards God and moving towards Him? Or are you split between two different things and you're, you can't really stay focused? And so you're kind of, you're just full of darkness because you can't move towards God because your, de, your devotion is split. And think about all the things that we as people can be, have split devotion over. Over our, our careers or our reputations or we can worry about so many things in this world and we, our, our vision, our devotion towards God can quickly just start to move this way or, or move that way. And then we lose sight of what's most important. And again, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, we can't be devoted to other things. Like We should be devoted to our family. We should have be devoted to our jobs. But he's talking about ultimate devotion, the thing that's most important. We should have single devotion toward God and everything else should be in our periphery. We can see it, but we're still gazing at Jesus first and foremost. And so where are you at when it comes to your devotion right now? Is it wavering towards something else or is it fixed on Jesus? And again, as sinful human beings, our devotion is going to wander. That's going to happen. So that's why it's important for us to, hey, I'm going to stop and I'm going to process. What am I looking at right now? Is my gaze towards Jesus or is it towards somewhere else? So those are the first two metaphors. We have treasure and now we have this like single eye devotion. 
And now Jesus is going to talk about our master. Right? And this is Matthew 6, verse 24. And he says this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. This idea of having a master, I don't think it fully hits us the way it would have hit Jesus' original audience. Because Jesus would have been talking to a group of people where some of them were masters, where they had slaves and servants who were under them. And others of them would have been slaves who had masters over them. We're not talking about employers. We're not talking about that kind of relationship because there's lots of people who have multiple employers who can work for different bosses. But a boss and a master, they're two different concepts. And we can, we can quit our jobs, even though I'm sure there are days where we can feel like our job is our master and it's, it's just driving our life. But at the end of the day, we could, we could walk out. It's, I'm done. But a slave in Jesus' culture couldn't do that. They couldn't be like, see you, master, I'm done. Or I'm going on vacation. I'm checking out. That couldn't happen. A slave was fully devoted to or supposed to be fully devoted to their master and they served them no matter what because they were their master. And as 21st century Americans, I don't think we necessarily like the idea of having a master. We kind of like our independence as people. We kind of like the fact that, hey, we can rule our own lives, so to speak. We can do what we want. We're our own master, right? But Jesus makes it very clear that we, we don't have a choice of whether we're masterless or not. But we have a choice of who's our master. The reality is we're, we all have a master. You have a master. I have a master. The question is, who is it? Who is your master? Who are you serving? Are you going to be serving God? Or are you going to be be serving something else? And Jesus uses money here. I don't think because that's the only thing we can be mastered by, but because it's such a good example of something that can master people. Even back in Jesus' day, money was something that could just so quickly master a person's life. And I think all the more in our society today. I could speak for myself. Just the idea of gaining more money so that I can gain more material possessions, so I can gain this goal, meet this goal in life, or get out of student loan debt, or save up for a house, or, or whatever. Like it's so easy where it's like, oh, money is the root of all of this happiness out here. And so I'm gonna go after it because it can get me so much. And think about our culture with workaholism, just how so many people are are just slaves to their work because they want to keep up with the Joneses. They, their neighbors have the next big thing, and so they want the next big thing. And there's just this endless cycle where they see on social media, hey, this person got this. Now I want that. And we're just, it's all rooted in this, I need more wealth. I need more money so I can do X, Y, and Z. But money and wealth, again, it's it's not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong to have money. 
But when money becomes a master in our life, it becomes a cruel and just grueling taskmaster. It just never lets up. It just constantly drives us into the ground. But Jesus is a good master. He's a master who knows what's best for us. But Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. If money is our master, we're not going to fully love Jesus. We're just not. But if we love Jesus, we're not going to fully love, we're not going to love money the way that we so often can. It has to be a one or the other reality. So you have a master. The question is, who is it? Who do you serve? All right, so Jesus has just taken these three metaphors of treasure and this, uh, asking like, hey, what do you value most in life? What treasure are you hunting after? To, all right, what's your single devotion? Or, or do you have split devotion? Is your eye healthy or unhealthy? And now, hey, you are a slave, you are a servant, but who's your master? And they're all, they're all different, but he's all driving towards this same thing. He's all I believe, trying to get us to process and to think about who we're living for and to ask, I think it could be summed up at this question, what's at the top of your heart's priority list? What's at the top of your heart's priority list? And these metaphors become incredible diagnostic questions for us when we can ask, hey, what's my treasure? What am I living for right now? What do I find most valuable in my life right now? Or, what am I devoted to? Like, what's that thing I just keep gazing at and I keep moving towards? Or, you know, who am I serving? All of those metaphors as human beings, I, I love it when, when God takes truth and puts it in a way that I can understand it. Like, thank you, God. Andrew needed that. And like, I can understand treasure. I can somewhat understand the master-slave dynamic. I can understand being devoted towards something. And so I can use all of these to diagnose where my heart is at and to say, hey, what's at the top of my heart's priority list right now at this moment? And I think that's so important for us as Christians to do because too often, and I'll speak for myself, my life gets moving and I just become a human doing and I just do things for God and do things for God and do things for God and I don't realize it, but slowly but surely, the, the angle of my life, it starts to move away from the things of God, just one degree at a time. And, and you know if you take one degree off and you extrapolate that out, pretty soon you're, you're really far away from where you were headed originally. And so sometimes as Christians, we need to stop doing and just process, how am I being? Where is my heart at? What treasure am I going after? Am I looking towards God or is there a split devotion with something else? Who's the master in my life right now? And I think all of those can help us answer that question, what's at the top of your heart's priority list? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when it comes to our priorities, again, I think God, God desires his people to have a genuine, authentic spirituality that is based on a relationship with him, not a fake and phony spirituality that is based on using God to look good in front of others. And so things like our motives and things like our priorities, they can quickly settle in the background of who we are 
and the things we do come to the forefront. Sometimes we have to hit pause and we have to back up and say, all right, where is this all coming from? Not because we're always going to do it right. Thank goodness for grace and mercy. And the fact that when we are saved, we are saved by God alone. And now we get to enter into this amazing process where by God's grace we are slowly conformed by sanctification more and more into the image of Jesus in this life. And we'll never reach perfection in this life. And we can take comfort in that. Because if we had to reach perfection, we would all fail miserably. But God can still work in our hearts and we can process, what are my motivations? What are my priorities? Am I off track or am I not? And so today, this week, I want to challenge us as a church family to not just do things for Jesus this week, but to actually stop and process, what are the motivations and the priorities of my life right now? Because maybe some of us are being ripped off and going after treasure that doesn't matter. Or maybe some of us, our eyes are so unhealthy because we're devoted to all these different things and we can't focus on what's most important. Or maybe some of us, we're being driven by a cruel taskmaster called money or, or something else when we could be serving the greatest master ever, Jesus, and experiencing the joy that comes with that. So take time this week. Process where your heart's at. And think about what are your motivations, what are your priorities, and how we can continue to live for God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Sermon on the Mount. It is challenging. It is not easy, but it is so good. And we just pray and ask that you help all of us to just process where we're at. May we not get fooled into bad investments and in investing in the temporal over the eternal. May our eyes be fixed on you. Thank you for being a loving and a good master. One who wants what's best for us. You don't want to use us and abuse us. You want to see us grow. So thank you for your love. Thank you for being with us. Be with us this week. In your name I pray. Amen.